0: This podcast episode was generously funded by two anonymous donors. If you would like to support the podcast in similar ways, please contact Hadley Kelly at hkelly at pbk.org. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa. I'm Fred Lawrence, Secretary and CEO of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. On this podcast, we feature conversations with leading scholars who are part of our Visiting Scholars program. They travel to colleges and universities across the country and deliver public talks on their specialties. To attend a free lecture, visit pbk.org for a full schedule. Laura Brown is a professor of English at Cornell University. She studies women writers, Slavery and Imperialism, Species and Racial Difference, The Portrayal of Animals, and The Imaginative Force of Things. Her most recent books, Homeless Dogs and Melancholy Apes, and Fables of Modernity, explore the rise of the modern imaginative engagement with animals and the ways in which cultural history shapes literary form. By looking at poetry, lyric writing, and narrative from past centuries, Professor Brown has been able to trace the development of the evolution of human-loving relationships to other species. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. It's great to be here. You have written extensively about non-human beings and literature and other topics in 18th century literature. I want to get to those as well, Uh, but let me start with something completely different. I, I know our listeners are dying to hear you talk a little bit about how you got interested in writing about animals in 18th century literary culture. It's not the most obvious topic, and yet you have really plumbed the depths of that to really give us a window into, among other things, how we love and express love. So how, first, how did you get interested in that, and how did it open itself up as such a powerful explanatory area?
1: I have asked myself that question many times recently, <laughs> and, I, and there's two different answers. One is kind of pragmatic, and the other is kind of theoretical. And the pragmatic one is, As I said, I was influenced by feminist criticism and by um, the study of women's literature, so I'm reading closely novels by women, and I'm reading this novel called Evelina by Frances Burney, which before the rise of engagement with women's literature was not widely read or taught. Now Evelina is rather widely taught even to undergraduate students. So I'm reading this book, and I'm thinking I need to pay attention to this Novel by a woman, and I need to pay attention to what it, it's. It's a story of a woman who finds um, a husband eventually, kind of on the model of Jane Austen's fiction. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading the book, and toward the end, there's this chapter no one's really written about, in which this monkey shows up and um, engages in kind of a fist fight with one of the very stupid suitors of Evelina. And I just stopped there, and I'm like, whoa, why is there a monkey? Right, what? is the monkey doing? Why is the monkey in such a prominent place, you know, really in the one of the last chapters of the book? So the novel is coming to a close and coming together and starting to make sense of Evelina's choice in marriage. So I decided I'm going to look closely at what this monkey is up to. Providing a close reading of the role and impact of the monkey in that novel made me think about animals more broadly made me realize that I had never, I'd not noticed the monkey before. And I'm like, okay, pay attention to the animals because you're going to find distinctive, significant other um, things to say about the literary materials. So that's the kind of Mm -hmm. pragmatic road to animals. And then, of course, I find monkeys and I find dogs everywhere. You just aren't paying attention.
0: Once you start looking, there they are.
1: There they are. The other road to it is really by thinking conceptually, about difference. And that arose for me from thinking about the representation of women and, you know, women as a category of alterity in literary history and in representation and in thinking about slavery and race and how representations of Africans are another form of difference or alterity in literary representation mm-hmm. in the especially in the 18th century with the you know the rise of the slave trade. And the notion of what it means to be engaged in a significant um, with a significant figure who's a kind of icon of difference, whether it's a woman or a slave, made me think about alterity kind of more broadly. What does it mean to be, what is alterity? What is difference and why do we What impact does it have on literary history or or on particular literary texts? And that led me to all the other formats for difference that one can kind of immediately think of. And that totally included the monkey in Evelina. That's a concrete representation of intrusion of something very different that is this monkey In the middle of a very conventional epistolary marriage plot, like as if, imagine a monkey suddenly shows up in Pride and Prejudice and runs all around attacking people.
0: Right. So did did she expect her audience to have any familiarity with monkeys, or was it supposed to be something exotic and outside their frame of reference?
1: In the 18th century, there was a lot of engagement with pets, and the monkey, believe it or not, in the 18th century, it would be more likely that an audience would have seen a monkey than a contemporary American audience today, small African monkeys were kept as pets alongside lap dogs in the first half or quarter of the 18th century. So some of our audience would have had, or would have known someone who had a pet monkey. This monkey that gets introduced is, I think, a more intrusive and larger monkey than most of the ones that people would have had as pets in the period.
0: To what extent is the 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 otherness, as you say, or the um, alternative of uh, the monkey in this case, uh, to what extent is that symbolic? to what extent is there almost a fetish-like aspect to it?
1: In evelina, I'm must say the monkey is a is meant to be opening up basically a question about what it means to be human. So the undesirable suitors of evelina, might be metaphorically described as silly monkeys. In fact, that's how come this monkey shows up. Someone says, oh, he's, he's a fop. He's just like a monkey. And then you turn the page, and in the next chapter, a real monkey um, it, uh, jumps into the picture. So the monk, the real monkey is the realization of a metaphorical monkey that's a descriptor for a human being. And I'm going to say part of what the monkey is doing in Evelina is raising a fundamental ontological question that was really relevant Mm -hmm. at the time. The discovery of the great apes in the first part of the 18th century, what happens is first comparative anatomy arises and scientists dissect a human body in a, a monkey body and what they discover is they kind of look alike on the outside but their organs and their and their skeletal system persuades you that they're almost indistinguishable. And the sudden realization of proximity between humans and hominoid apes is a kind of ongoing philosophical creates a philosophical debate in the course of the period. And Bernie's novel is just latching on to that debate in even as it's understood and realized in popular culture. And so it's trying to say, well, what if we are all monkeys? Or what if there isn't a significant, real significant difference between monkeys and humans? Who do we then marry? Could we marry a monkey?
0: hmm Now, this is all well pre-Darwin, right? So none of this has yes. to do with, mm-hmm. with evolutionary theory. And yet some of it has a kind of an anticipation of some of the discussion that will come up a century later in, yeah, absolutely. in post-Darwinian writings
1: uh uh-huh. it's opening the way for darwin in the sense of for for one thing it's it's asking questions about what being is and and all, and it's also really disassembling or or fundamentally altering the notion of the great chain of being which is a um you know religious and philosophical structure that imagines there being a chain from god to angels, to humans, to animals, to rocks. And that in each link in the chain, you can't you can't get past it. Each link is its own separate um, stage in the chain. And questioning and creating fluidity across the links in the chain through f- theories of hybridization, like could a man and a hominoid ape have a, you know, mixed baby? Or other theories of h- hybridization, like could a man a woman mate with a fish? And could they have a mermaid? The idea that there may be hybrids that um, have, you know, thus far been unidentified, or that the whole scenario of this chain might be fluid, and that there might not be simple demarcations along in the hierarchy, changes, fundamentally changes the perspective on the human, the animal, and even eventually on the material thing.
0: I, I want to take you to one of the lectures that you've given this past year as a visiting scholar. You know, we talk a lot about the the arts and sciences in Phi Beta Kappa, not just the liberal arts uh, in terms of the humanities uh, and the arts, but also the sciences as part of the liberal arts, the left brain, right brain piece. And it seems to me that one of your lectures just does that in the most extraordinary way, looking at Isaac Newton and Newtonian mechanics. On the one hand, Daniel Defoe's classic Robinson Crusoe, on the other. What are the connections between Sir Isaac Newton and Robinson Crusoe, and how did you come to this project?
1: So I'm thinking about new materialism because it's the next step for me in thinking about the other than human. Um, moving from women to whatever I did, a range of representations of the other, to animals, then made me think about all those other things that are not human that populate literary texts. And, of course, Robinson Crusoe has only one human, and everything else, the whole rest of the population of that novel is other-than-human stuff. And it struck me as a, as a real proof text for taking seriously literature's engagement with the other-than-human things. So that's how I got to the idea of the portrayal of things in Robinson Crusoe. And I as I said I'm not sure how I made my leap to Newton. I really don't know exactly how I got there except that the when I did arrive at Newton the connection was so obvious to me in that what Newton's theory of matter and his idea of the you know matter's relationship to force and energy What Newton is doing is populating the world for us modern people. He's showing us that the world is populated by by things that move and have motion and attraction of their own. And in a similar way, I'm realizing that Robinson Crusoe is a novel populated by things that are generating each other. So one of the um, projects in my reading in my interpretation of Robinson Crusoe is to show how Defoe's description of this population of things in Crusoe's island have a kind of opportunity to act, to create themselves, to exert a kind of active energy that is really corollary to the kind of irresistible engagement with motion that Newton's theory of gravitation is proposing as the kind of new way of understanding the world around us.
0: There are so many fascinating themes that run through the 18th century, and I wonder how you see them running through uh, literature in the period. One picking up right where we are with Caruso, James Joyce famously said that Caruso was the true prototype of a British colonist. So uh, imperialism is, is beginning in a serious way in the 18th century. So how do you see imperialism being reflected through literature in the 18th century? Mm -hmm.
1: That's a cool question for me because I described earlier my engagement with feminist criticism and with the representation of women. And I got to imperialism directly through reading portrayals of women in 18th century, especially poetry. We know that there's a powerful um, misogynist or anti-feminist tradition in 18th century poetry from especially Jonathan Swift's works, But what I feel like I discovered, and it really led me to think more deeply about imperialism, is that often women are the lever for critiquing or engaging with imperialist ideology in the period. So um, one of my books is on this topic, and it takes the poetry, the drama, and to some extent the fiction, and shows that Women are kind of a kind of metaphor or a kind of emblematic point of engagement with imperialism. A famous passage is from The Rape of the Lock by Alexander Pope in which he says Belinda is at her dressing table and she's dressing herself to be incredibly beautiful. And all the things on her dressing table are products of global trade. So it's like an—
0: right, None of it's coming from Yep, Britain. yep.
1: It's like an an assemblage of the British Empire— only it's compactly produced for her, and it's sitting on her table, and she's applying it to her body. And so when she walks away from the dressing table, she's completely adorned by and and covered by the consequences of British imperialism. What is that saying about women, about Mm -hmm. empire, about the British nation? The feminization of imperialist ideology is just a fascinating topic in a whole lot of different ways. So that's kind of how I got there.
0: And sort of the cousin of imperialism, the rise of slavery and the slave mm-hmm. trade during the 18th century, how do, how do we see, and we talked about that a little bit earlier, but how do you see that as a theme that runs through 18th century fiction?
1: Well, the most important um, statement on slavery in prose narrative is, is Afro Afrobanes Orinoco, really from the 17th century, from 1688. That poem is rewritten um, by Thomas Southern as a play, and it's popular in the in the dramatic literature as well as in prose fiction all through the 18th century, it doesn't so much impact the traditional 18th century novel by, like Richardson or Fielding, except in the sense that it takes the idea of the heroic and it tries to understand slavery in the context of the um, heroic tradition. Which turns out to be a kind of paradox or inversion of the engagement with the royal African. So it's a complicated scenario, much less straightforward than the feminization of ideology in terms of the representation right. of right. women, and harder to discover an influence on the part of Orinoco throughout the period. but I, I I think it's there in the distinctive engagement with the hero in realist fiction.
0: And then pulling the lens back. A little bit further, uh, we think of the 18th century, actually beginning in the late 17th century, as the beginning of the Age of Enlightenment. Some date the beginning of the Age of Enlightenment to our friend Isaac Newton's uh, Principia Mathematica, which is the late 17th century. How does the Enlightenment project show itself through the literature that you've been studying?
1: As a positivist and claim to optimistic solution of local and global problems, I think. I think that's the kind mm-hmm. of the mode of engagement with the world that's typical of the Enlightenment. You know, if you think about the realist novel as a, a statement about the opportunities that are condensed in the idea of the protagonist, who with whom we identify, whose chal- you know, whose challenges um we share, and who, you know, even when that protagonist doesn't come to a happy ending, like in the case of Richardson's Clarissa where she dies in the end, the, fulfill, the sense of fulfillment that, you, that the realist novel cr- creates in the reader um, based on the you know depth of identification with a, a protagonist whom you know so well by the end of the novel that you know them better than yourself, I think those are tied to the ideology of the Enlightenment.
0: And that there's a narrative arc to their lives and we get to carry get carried along mm-hmm. on that narrative Yep, we arc. all belong there. So let me let me shift from the scholarly part of your life to the, the teaching part of your life. You were the senior vice provost for undergraduate education at Cornell in an earlier part of your career and also chair of uh, Cornell's celebrated English department, mm-hmm. right? That's right. So I know you've thought a lot about undergraduate education in general and the future of undergraduate education and the humanities in particular. I'm sure a lot of talk these days about whether the humanities is under attack, uh, how the humanities can survive the moment that we're living through. So I, I wonder what you learned this year as a visiting scholar that influenced your thinking about undergraduate education in the humanities.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a great question, and I'm so grateful to have had this year to talk with great groups of undergraduate students at so many different schools. Okay, I learned three things. One, every time there was a group of undergraduate students at lunch or in some kind of informal gathering, and and I asked them, and these would be mostly English majors or, or humanities majors, I admit, I asked them whether this was a meaningful experience being a major in, you know, this area of study and whether it was going to be relevant to their ongoing careers. They all said, yes, definitely, incredibly great. So it was... A very affirming experience for me in terms mm-hmm. of... So that was my first very positive takeaway, that this the country is full of schools, I bet, where if you go to a student who's a, an English major and ask them, is it worth it? Is it, is it working out? They're going to be really pleased and they're going to have concrete things to say. The, the second thing I learned is that so many of these undergraduate students who are um, um, super engaged with their work is the scope of their connection with other disciplines, the numbers of double or triple majors, and the ones who are majoring jointly in some kind of, uh, you know, I'm, you know, even computer science or cognitive psychology. Use, the students who are majoring in unexpected but corollary areas was really really large. Like more than half of the students I talked with were doing more than one singular discipline as a as an undergraduate. And so I'm asking them, is this confusing you? And how are you putting things, I mean, who's helping you make sense of these different paths? And their general answer is only me, I'm doing my very best, I'm thinking it must be relevant, I'm trying to write papers that tie them together. But so there, my impression is a huge amount of initiative on the part of the students and a little bit less um, support than maybe they should be getting on the part of their departments or programs.
0: And maybe there's a role for us to play in the academy to give further flowering to that kind of interdisciplinary thought. Absolutely.
1: That was my takeaway lesson. And I'm hoping that, you know, we can do something along those lines here at Cornell. And the other thing... The third thing has more to do with creative writing. It's everywhere. Um, New creative writing majors, new creative writing minors, students coming from across the campus who would come to my talk because their friends were English majors, but they weren't. You know, they're in some other field, but because they were taking creative writing courses in English, they're getting engaged with thinking about literary materials,
0: And that they're finding that their own creative project is a point of entry into the humanities rather than just learning how to read other people's
1: Absolutely. And even more broadly, like what is creativity for this, you know, for the college students right now? We really don't know well enough. They certainly don't know. I mean, we don't know in the humanities. And if we don't know, how can we expect others to know in other fields (laughs) Um, Because they're looking to us to know what creativity is about.
0: Well, I'm glad your visiting scholar experience has influenced your, your teaching and your view of education. Has it influenced your own sense of your scholarship and your writing?
1: It has definitely. I'm currently writing a new essay on Newton and Newton's theory of gravity in relation to Alexander Pope. So it's a brand new project. And as I start writing, I'm usually in this mode of writing something that's going to be published for a scholarly audience. But having talked with undergraduate students so intensively for the last whatever 12 months, 10 months. I'm starting out in a whole different mode of discourse in just in terms of my writing style. And I'm starting out with a poem. I'm writing about one of Pope's poems and I I'm not starting out with a some theoretical statement of new materialism, which I'm totally tempted to do. We'll see what happens and whether the journal editors like it, but I think I'm going to write this essay in a very different way.
0: Well, you've been at the academic business and the literary criticism business for decades. And to hear you come out of a visiting scholar year saying you're going to do it differently and you're thinking about it differently means it not only was a success for the students, as I know, but apparently it was a success for you. And I'm delighted to hear that.
1: Absolutely. I'm very grateful to have had this opportunity.
0: Well, we're grateful to have had you as a visiting scholar and glad to have you in the Phi Beta Kappa family. Thanks so much for coming in today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: This podcast is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. Paula Mardo is our sound designer. Hadley Kelly is the PBK producer of the show. Emma Forbes is the show's intern. The theme song is Back to Back by Jan Perchik. To learn more about the Phi Beta Kappa Visiting Scholar program, please visit pbk.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Fred Lawrence. Until next time...